0: Hi everybody, this is Dr. Eric Quorum, founder of AIM-7. Welcome back to The Blueprint, where we distill cutting-edge science, leadership, and life skills into simple tactics optimized for your busy lifestyle and goals. Today is the third episode in a series I've been doing on the science and training methodologies for improving qualities like muscle hypertrophy, strength, and today I'm addressing power. In this episode, I detail methods for improving power output, the relationship between strength and power, and how training for power relates to sustaining a high quality of life as you age. This is going to be a really tactical episode for anybody that's interested in improving this, or maybe you're interested in improving it for your kids. This is a great episode for that. As a reminder, before making any substantial changes to your individualized exercise program, Please consult with your physician first. All right, let's dig in. Let's start by defining what power is. Power is work over time or force times distance over time. Simply stated in the relationship to human movement, power is force times velocity. It's the product of these two things. And both components need to be addressed in a training program to develop power. Force and velocity are not independent of each other in muscle action as the velocity of movement increases, force that the muscle produces decreases during a concentric or overcoming muscle action. Think about it like this, if you're bench pressing a lot of weight, you can't move that weight very fast. However, if it's a very light weight, you can move it really really fast. This can be best viewed on a force-velocity curve. I highly recommend that you go on Google and Google that force-velocity curve. You'll understand what I'm saying. At really high force, velocity is low. Really high velocity, force is low. Therefore, maximum power is achieved at a compromised level of maximum force and velocity. It's kind of somewhere in the middle. So before I get into the nuts and bolts of how to develop power and the physiological adaptations that result from this type of training, you may be wondering if you're an adult, like, why is this important to me? Why should I be concerned with training power? I'm not an athlete. Research demonstrates that your ability to function later in life or have a high quality of life is closely related to your ability to generate power. And there's a really cool paper that I found by Voss and colleagues published in the Journal of Gerontology, And the paper is titled Optimal Load for Increasing Muscle Power During Explosive Resistance Training in Older Adults. And I want to read you a little excerpt from that paper. And it says, Predictable accompaniment to natural aging beyond the fourth to fifth decade of life is a steady reduction in the force-generating capacity or strength of the skeletal muscle. Age-associated losses in strength occur predominantly as a consequence of reductions in muscle cross-sectional area. That's something that we discussed in the previous episodes. However, loss of muscle power, the product of muscular force and velocity of contraction, does not mirror but exceeds the rate of strength loss with age. Preferential atrophy of type 2 muscle fibers, which possess a two-fold to four-fold greater contraction velocity than type 1 muscle fibers, may partially explain the discrepancy between losses in strength and power with age. Because remember, with uh, lifting heavy loads, there's this thing called the size principle where you're gonna recruit type one fibers, then type two fibers, or smaller to larger motor units. So what this is saying here is that as you age, you're potentially preferentially losing these type two explosive fibers first, which impact power. Muscle power has been shown to be positively associated with the ability in older adults to perform activities of daily life, such as walking, rising from a chair, climbing stairs, and may be a strong predictor of functional dependency than muscle strength. So muscle power is also related to dynamic balance, postural sway, and maybe a stronger predictor of fall risk than strength. Thus, increasing muscle power may lead to improvements in functional capacity and prevent falls, dependency, and disability later in life. So I don't know if there's another better reason to train power than to want to have a more functional life as you age. So this may be an episode that you want to share with a loved one. Also, you may have kids that are participating in youth sports and you want to do some power training with them because that's one of the most important qualities that they can develop. I say power and speed are substantially more important than spending tons of time on strength development. It's harder to develop, requires more neuromuscular adaptations like we're going to talk about in a second. So I think there's a lot of bang for your buck in this when it comes to improving athletic performance or maybe you're a recreational athlete looking for an edge. Either way, I think it's important to understand how to develop power. So let's talk about the physiological adaptations to power training. In our last episode, we talked about strength training, and I'll just mention a couple of those adaptations because it's gonna be really important to understand the difference. So strength training causes increases in the cross-sectional area or hypertrophy of the muscles. So you have more contractile units to generate more force. There's also changes in muscle architecture, changes in connective tissue stiffness, and there's a host of neuromuscular adaptations such as increasing motor unit recruitment. You can recruit higher threshold motor units to generate more force. With power training, most of the adaptations are neuromuscular. So let's dig into that for a second. The first one I wanna highlight is decreased motor unit activation threshold. What this means is you can actually recruit motor units at a lower threshold so you can produce power more quickly. This is a really cool advantage. The next one is potential selective recruitment of motor units. And we talked about the size principle last time that motor units are recruited from smaller units to larger units, but you may be able to recruit larger motor units first with ballistic types of muscle actions, which we're gonna talk about here a little bit later. The next one is improved rate coding or improve motor unit firing frequency. So when motor unit firing frequency exceeds the level that is sufficient to achieve maximum force, further increases in firing frequency contributes to an increase in the rate of force development. So if you can improve how much neurological drive is going to these motor units, you can develop more force, which is gonna help with power. And the last one is, potentially increase muscle cross-sectional area, which may improve high power output as a strong relationship exists between muscle size and muscle fiber type. So the bigger the muscles, the more type two fibers you have. More type two fibers, the more force and the more power. But too much non-functional hypertrophy can reduce range of motion and alterations in muscle architecture namely penation angle, which we talked about last time, which is required for force development, which can deteriorate high power production. So when you see these massive bodybuilders, they're not always the most powerful people because they have non-functional hypertrophy. And I think this is a really important thing to note, especially when it comes to youth sport athletes. Packing on pounds and pounds of muscle is not the answer to being a more powerful athlete. As a matter of fact, you you can look at some of those powerful athletes on the planet and power is generated in a lot of different ways. We'll talk about jumping at another time, but stored elastic energy. You see very bouncy individuals, as I like to say, that aren't massive. So getting too big can be non-functional and decrease power output. Now let's transition to the methods part. When you train for power, your goal is to increase rate of force development and to generate more force faster. So there are two factors at play. Number one, how much force can you generate? And number two, the velocity or rate at which you generate force. Generally speaking, you can increase power by increasing force and or velocity. And I prefer a mixed method approach, meaning training with heavy weights, traditional strength training, and also training with lighter loads to increase velocity. So let's talk about strength training. When you train for strength, as a recap, you're moving relatively heavy loads for low reps, usually one to five rest with tons of rest. You need adequate rest. The speed of movement is slow because the intensity of the load is very high. It's the only way you can get stronger. Heavy resistance training is theorized to improve power production because you recruit more fast switch motor units to move the weight, which means you can increase force, but the speed of movement can be a detriment to improve rate of force development. Remember, power is force times velocity. So, strength is important up to a certain point. For the average adult, I wouldn't spend a tremendous time worrying about building maximum strength. Note, I didn't say not exercising to improve strength, but I don't think there's much value in trying to focus on bench pressing 315 pounds or moving your bench press from 315 to 330 or squatting 500 pounds if you're in your 40s, unless that's just a personal goal. I don't think the orthopedic cost outweighs bumping your bench press up a little bit. Now, for sports, the amount of strength you need To develop depends on the sport. A football, let's take football for example. A lineman, strength is very crucial. These guys are like in a scrum, there's what's called isometric forces. They've got to move heavy loads. Now let's talk about a golfer. Still very important as the power for the golf swing is generated through what's called ground reaction forces or force exerted through the ground, through your feet. But you can build that safely. And moving from a trap bar deadlift of let's say 400 pounds to 450 will yield negligible results in power. So you need to build requisite strength, let's say for a golf swing, but then you wanna focus more on velocity. Once you demonstrate that you have adequate strength, I'd maintain that strength and spend more of your time on resisted power exercises or ballistic exercises. I don't wanna downplay the role of strength, but for most people, who've trained for several years correctly, it's typically not the limiting factor. There was a study by Wilson and colleagues that found explosive resistance training was superior to improving muscular power and dynamic athletic performance compared to traditional heavy resistance training. The authors found that explosive resistance training, in this instance, it was uh, explosive jump squats, so they had a bar on their back with a very light load that was optimized for power output yielded a statistically greater improvement of 15% in static jump performance over heavy squat training, which only saw 7%. This was more than two-fold improvement. In addition, the authors found improvements in 30 yards, 30-meter 30 sprint time, Counter movement jump height were improved, which is a indicator of peak vertical power because they used explosive resistance training. I also want to make the point of this. I did find this paper and they studied what they called relatively weak men that I would hate to have been qualified for that study. But they found that people that were just weak, uh, if they did strength training or they did ballistic power training, both got better at power. Here's the reason. When you're just starting out, we talked about this last time, most of the adaptations are neurological to begin with. You're going to get better. It's really hard to screw it up. But after about six months, um, you really got to start narrowing your focus. And this brings us back to something I mentioned a long time ago called the SED principle. SED stands for Specific Adaptation to Impose Demands. If you want to improve power, you need a mixed method approach. If you want to improve power, you got to improve force and you got to improve velocity. If you're training for force all the time, you're not gonna get as much power production as you want. If you're spending all your time on high-end velocity movements, certain parts of the power spectrum are not going to improve. So now let's talk about some recommendations for explosive resistance training. Okay, these recommendations come from the work of Soriano and colleagues from a paper I found from 2015. uh, The Optimal Load for Maximal Power Production During Lower Body Resistance Exercise, a meta-analysis. In addition, some of these recommendations come from the work of Gregory Half and Naoki Kawamori. Okay, so let's start with Explosive Resistance Training. This would be like doing a squat or a bench press, standard squat, standard bench press, but you're moving a lighter load really fast. So for instance, you would perform, let's take, take the squat exercise, you would lower the weight normally and then the concentric or overcoming portion, you would explode as hard and as fast as you can the loads or the intensity on the bar would be around 30 to 70% of your one rep maximum. So let's say all you could squat was a thousand pounds. And in that case, I'd say you need to be working on some strength, but let's say that was all you could squat and you're a 185 pound male. Then if you just take 30%, that'd be 30 pounds and you would do an explosive squat. Historically, For explosive resistance training, I've used anywhere between 50 to 65% of a one rep max for what is termed the dynamic effort method. Now this was popularized by West Side Barbell, but it came from uh, Soviet methodologies for training. Uh, So you would take like, let's say 50% of your maximum for back squat. You could perform anywhere between five to eight sets for two to three reps with anywhere between 90 seconds to two minutes rest. If you were to do this for bench press, be the same type of setup, five to eight sets, two to three reps, usually around the three rep range. And you would lower the bar under control, explode as fast as you can. Lower it under control, explode as fast as you can. If you go back to our discussion on developing the phosphocreatine system, remember I told you that everything works as a system? When you're developing power, you're also developing the maximal power output of the phosphocreatine system. So you have to keep in mind the energy systems that are also being developed here that support power output. So you wanna keep your sets less than 10 seconds. I think less than seven seconds is ideal. And you wanna move the weight with maximum effort and you need complete rest between sets. So usually two minutes is safe. This brings me to a concept called compensatory acceleration. The idea is this. No matter how heavy the weight, your intention should be to move the bar or implement as fast as possible, specifically in the concentric or overcoming portion of the lift, so the upward part of the squat or the pressing part of the bench press. This is really important because literature demonstrates that the intention to move the bar is just as important as how fast it's moving because you get more motor unit recruitment, you get a greater neurological drive and this improves strength and power output. The key is great technique and move the bar as fast as possible. Explosive resistance training isn't just limited to the bench press and the squat. I've used power rows, which is a great movement. You can do an explosive leg press, any traditional movement. You could use a machine chest press. This is a safe way to train power because you're not having a bar that's not connected to something that's not, you know, that's the bar's freely moving out in space or doing dumbbells. So, if you really want to be safe, get in a machine chest press, lower the weight under control, explode with a load that's around 30 to 70% of your max. The weight should feel light to moderately heavy. So, that's explosive resistance training. Now, let's talk about squat jumps. Okay, this is a way to improve lower body power. Uh, you can use a bar on your back. You can use a kettlebell. You can hold a kettlebell with two hands. Um, you can do this from a counter movement, which means you do a quick dip and jump. You can do and make it a single effort. You can do multiple efforts in a row. You can do a static jump, which means you'd squat, hold, and then jump. It all depends on the use case, but you want to use a load that's around less than or equal to 30% of your one RM. So this would be like, if you're a hundred pound squat, be 30 pounds. And I'd keep the exercise volume confined to reps of like five to eight. If it's really light loads, you can get up to eight. If it's heavier loads, you know, maybe in that three to five rep range, complete recovery, you know, sometimes maybe two to three minutes. If it's early in the training phase, you can do a little bit higher volume with less recovery, and you can intensify the efforts by increasing the recovery and lowering the number of weights or the number of reps. The next one is Olympic lifts. Okay, here's my stance on Olympic lifts. This is things like power cleans and snatches and jerks. These are great exercises. There's a lot of technical proficiency that's required to execute them, but they do help with improving power output. All but you don't have to do these to improve power. I see a lot of people hurting themselves because they don't know how to perform a snatch. They try to catch a bar overhead, they hurt their shoulder. Um, it's just bad news. Uh, you can do things like pulling from the floor. I like to do trap bar pulls. Puts my body in a mechanically advantaged position. I don't have to catch a bar. There's a lot of ways that you can work around this. But the ideal low for things like so, things like a power clean or a hang power clean is around 70% for producing power. So 70 to 80% is kind of that sweet spot. In regards to volume, I highly recommend not exceeding four reps. Otherwise, power dramatically decreases. You're putting yourself at a risk for injury. You're not training the appropriate energy system. I do not think it's wise to include Olympic lifts and exercise circuit training. That's just not a good idea. Three is usually my limit. And the number of sets that you need to do really depends on your training age. If you're a newbie, um, maybe you do a couple warm-up sets and You'll be doing three working sets. You've been training for a long time. It's going to take more volume, more intensity to improve power. The last method I want to talk about is ballistic training. This means you're actually throwing an object or an implement. You can generate tons of power because you aren't having to decelerate the object such as a bar or an implement. Think about this. Like if you're doing a bench press, and you explode on the concentric portion. You have to decelerate the bar. The bar is going to come out of your hands. So one exercise you can do is called a bench press throw. This is a wonderful exercise for improving upper body power, but it can be incredibly dangerous. Please do not execute this exercise or even attempt it unless you have a spotter, then you have a lot of parameters in place, but for athletes like football players, or rugby players, or anybody that has to improve uh, fighters having to strike, this is an excellent exercise. The low would be anywhere between ten percent to forty-five percent of your one RM. Same type of loading parameters as a squat jump. You know, three repetitions for heavier weight. You could get up to eight. Um, if it's really light and you're moving it pretty fast, but try to keep this, you want to keep the set under 10 seconds. My favorite type of ballistic training is medicine ball throws. You can do these at all ages and you can get very specific with the range of motion and the region of movement that correlates closely with sports demands. I want to get on a high horse for just a second or my soapbox. Functional training. People are like, oh, I go into functional training for baseball or soccer and people have you standing on a BOSU ball and doing, that is not functional. You're not training for an earthquake. If you wanna learn more about this, Google principles of dynamic correspondence. It basically means the transferability of the exercises you're doing to actually improving the sport. And there's five of these things, the amplitude and direction of the movement, the accentuated region of force production, the dynamics of effort, the rate and time of maximum force production, and the regime of muscular work. If you want me to do an episode on sports specificity, just shoot me a DM, and Instagram, or something like that, and if there's a big enough demand, I'm happy to do it. But there's a ton of charlatans out there. Don't buy into it. Most of the training you do is very general, okay? And it can support sports performance, but the higher up you go, the less it's directly going to change a specific technique in the game. But medicine ball throws are one of those things you can get really specific with. I love med ball throws because they're easy to coach. You can learn them really quick and you can generate a ton of power. So what is a medicine ball throw? You would hold a medicine ball and you perform a ton of movements where you actually release the implement. So maybe a backwards overhead throw. You start from a squatted position, you jump and explode and throw the ball over your head. Uh, A squat to overhead throw, slamming the medicine ball down, rotational slams. You can also go from a medicine ball throw to a sprint. This is a great way to teach different acceleration mechanics, like a half squat, explode forward, throw the ball and sprint. Charlie Francis really popularized this methodology. I highly recommend it for youth sport athletes. I used it with college athletes. I love it myself. And this is one of the training methodologies that is not utilized appropriately. You can use it in circuit training okay, for just general physical preparation, general aerobic development. But if you want to improve power, same thing applies as the other methodologies, maximum effort, full recovery. So you may have a partner and you do, let's say five or less reps of backwards overhead throw. And then you may need to rest two to three minutes, you could do some light technical, you know, a skips or b skips or jogging or something like that. But this is power development for a youth athlete, you may start as low as four pounds, Work your way up to eight pounds for an adult, depending on the movement, you know, six to 12 pounds. You can get all the way up to heavier weights into the 20, 25 pound range, but you have to have really good technical proficiency. I've found that this is easy to use, really safe, highly recommend it. So let's wrap this up. Power output is one of the most important qualities to train for sports performance and to help with functional daily living as you age. According to Half and Kawamori, training with the optimal load that maximizes mechanical power output is strongly recommended, especially to improve maximum muscular power or muscular power over a wide range of loads. So stick to the recommendations I gave you. Traditional resistance, explosive exercises like explosive squats or bench press, the dynamic effort method, 30 to 70% is the range. The sweet spot is around 50 to 65%. If you're doing squat jumps, Keep it less than 30%. Bench throws, 10 to 45% caution. Okay. Olympic lifts, 78% is ideal. Medicine balls, experiment with different weights and different movements. Depends on how old you are youth ages, you know, anywhere in the four to eight pound range, adults, six to 12, and you can go up from there. You need maximal recovery between sets. So doing explosive squats, resting 45 seconds, doing it again, you are not going to improve maximum power. You need complete rest. This takes roughly 90 seconds, more on the spectrum of two to three minutes. Your set should not exceed 10 seconds. Remember, we're tapping into the phosphocreatine system and you don't need a ton of volume. So shoot for three to five great working sets with great technique. Last thing, this is gonna empty the tank or fatigue you in a very different way. It's very demanding on the central nervous system. So it could take up to 48 hours to recover from this. If you found this episode or the series that I'm doing useful, let me know, shoot me a DM on Instagram. I'd love to hear from you. And if you want to support the show, please consider leaving us a review and a comment in the Apple podcast app. Thanks again for listening. and I'll catch you on the next episode.